We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. As we are recording on Luchuita, I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Palawa people. As we're a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here in the studio, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined today by my co-host Emma Hamasaki. Now today's a very special episode in that it's Emma's first episode as a co-host, so welcome to the Twix team Emma, very excited to have you here. And our guest today, Louise Creeley, joins us from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies. All three of us met last year while working on an Australian Antarctic Festival exhibition held here at IMAS. And Louise has a fast experience in the world of science communication and has a wealth of knowledge regarding ways to really get a good conversation going, especially when it comes to all things science. So a perfect guest to have here on Twix. But I'll pass on over to Emma to introduce our guest a little bit more. Thanks, Ollie, and thank you for having me, Twix. Um, and great to have you here, Lou. So our guest, Lou, Louise, sorry, I'll call you Lou on the podcast, um, is a great communication professional, a writer and also an editor who has love for sharing knowledge and all things nature related. So have you always been a storyteller or is it some, from a young age or is it something that you've kind of found a passion for later in life? Definitely have been writing all my life. I was one of those little kids that used to sit in my, in the school holidays. I used to sit in my bedroom and write magazines. Gosh. So um, what kind of magazines were you I, writing? Well, I was reading Dolly at the time. <laughs> Forgive me, but things like that. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, no, that's wonderful. So how did the writing of those magazines come about to lead you into science communication? I started out... Um, as a primary teacher, so um, studied primary teaching, but then I went into um, business communication and I started even when I was a student, I was writing feature articles for magazines and things like when I was had a baby, I was wrote for Mother and Baby magazine as their Queensland correspondent and it just went from there, so it wasn't always science. Wow. How was it transferring the different fields of is it very similar communicating science to communicating other things to, than science? I think it's all the same. I think you're talking to people and you're trying to find a hook, something that's, that means something to them and something that they're interested in. And um, I, I'm also very aware that people don't necessarily like to read a lot. So keeping it simple, the KISS theory, is smart. I've been doing that all my life. That's what my writing's about. What's the KISS theory? So it's keep it simple is smart. So some scientists have said to me, oh, you know, I don't want you to dumb it down. It's just – and for me, that's – it's not dumbing it down. It's actually relating to people and talking at their level. 
Yeah, but often it's harder to shorten information to be able to get it out to the general public than telling them the full story. So along with being able to communicate your work in a shorter format, are there any other tips and tricks that are helpful when it comes to communicating? Yes, there's definitely things that you can do. You have to be really aware of your audience and you have to pitch your science at a, an age of about 10 to 12. Um, and that's not dumbing it down. That's just making sure that everybody understands science. There's a bit of a myth that people know what science is and that they understand science. But even if you look at scientists um, in, their diff- in their different disciplines – they don't understand other disciplines necessarily. So using the language that's common to people out there in the street um, is really important because I've had scientists who are from different... Like one was a hydrologist, one was a fisheries person. They didn't understand what the other one was saying because it's not their area of research. So I think you have to be really careful about your audience and just understand that not everybody else is on your wavelength and not everybody else uses your language. Do you think that is coming more into awareness among scientists or is it still relatively unknown that that's how we should be communicating or approaching communicating? I've never had any trouble with scientists accepting that they have to talk at at that level. Um, Probably one example I would say was back back in the day, um, I was training some PhD students to give special talks at at a conference it included a bit of performance. It was communicating their science really simply to a, a massive audience of all disciplines. And one of the students said to me, oh, no, if I say it like that, my supervisor will kill me. And I said, no, your supervisor will love you. And when he got up on the stage with all the others, they did, they did all their talks. They were brilliant and really simple. Someone on the street could have understood them. And they actually got a standing ovation and, the, and I had so many comments back from scientists saying that was the highlight of the conference because we understood everything. And that's in a science community. So imagine what it is out there when nobody actually has the background in science that you would have, how important it is to put it really simply and to always use active language as well. That sounds awesome. I definitely would, would have loved to have gone to something like that. Um, do you think, you know, from your experience having hosting or managing those kind of events do you prefer communicating like science through like that kind of in-person event style or more like in writing oh, a bit of both I think um, we have to be really aware though that in our TikTok era mm. that people don't read a lot so probably the most someone would read would be an inst unless they're really into it uh, would be an Instagram post that has both four paragraphs it has to be active it has to be a very informal um, but I do love watching scientists at events there's nothing better than watching enthusiastic scientists chatting about their research and we've had a situation where it's been really controversial and I just stood back and I watched them and I was just overwhelmed because the people who were wanting to argue with them just couldn't because they looked at them and went, these people know what they're talking about. These people are out doing really good things and they were really convinced that science is great. So they came in a bit adversarial and they left really happy. And that's really important. I think it's really important for scientists to put their hand up and go out and talk to the public. It's really good for you. It helps you 
think about why your science is important. Um, it takes you out of the how you do it and into what it means to people on the street and I think that's a really important thing. Oh, well, awesome. Well, stick with us um, for part two and we'll kind of talk a little bit more about uh, Lou's previous work in communication and talk a little bit more about SciComm as well. Thanks, everyone. Listen to That's What I Call Science on Edge Radio Sundays at 5pm for your weekly fix of awesome science content. Uh, Welcome back everyone. So you're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking about all things science communication. My name is Emma Hamasaki and I'm joined by Oli Dove along with our expert guest Louise Creeley from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. So Lou, you've mentioned previously that you are also known as the dragonfly. Would you be able to share like how, how and why you got that nickname? Yes. <laughs> Let me say. Um, when I was working for Econet Communication, I was, one of my clients was the Murray-Darling Basin Commission and I was writing feature articles for them. And so they asked me to write an article about three new species in the Murray-Darling Basin that they'd found in their assessment – So I was thinking about how I was going to do this and the headline popped into my head was glossy wings, slippery things and the cat's whiskers. And I thought, I'm not going to get away with that, but I put it down anyway. And so that sort of triggered me into writing it as a story. So the feature of the story was all the scientists going out into the Murray-Darling Basin at dusk with their little butterfly nets. And so... That's how my story started and I continued it as a story but I still had all the, the um, important bits in it about what the species were. It was a dragonfly, a worm and a catfish. And so when I gave it to the, my client for him to go and get approvals, he was really nervous and he said, they're just not going to take it, they're just not going to do this, they won't do it. And I said, I'll give it a go and so he did. The CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Commission absolutely loved it he said, yes, we're publishing this, we're going to do a big print run of it to put with all our marketing material and this is how I want my any future articles to be written. And so then I got the nickname The Dragonfly and that's where it stuck. And so when I started my business, I was talking to the same client um, about names for my business and he said it should be something to do with Dragonfly. So I, And that's when Dragonfly took flight. So what... What was your business? My business was called Dragonfly Inc, which was in the days before <laughs> tattoos were a thing, but it was always a really good talking point when I went to see new clients. Um, that, was a, that was a business communication. It wasn't science communication per se, but it was business communication. But I did work for government and write, write science features and things like that. And I also specialised in natural and cultural heritage interpretation, which was about writing for national parks, for city parks and other installations up and down the East Coast. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, What were the difficulties and positives that came from starting your own communication business? 
it was an overnight decision for me <laughs> and it was quite difficult but I jumped into it and I didn't have any clients so it was about um, asking people I'd worked with in the past to recommend me to people and two of my previous lecturers got me business, other people, other previous clients got me business and so it was really about, I think it really makes you think about your strategies and how you communicate and you're going in as an expert so you ha- it builds your confidence because everything you do, every project you do is so different and it gives you all these new skills and I think you take that into whatever your next job is or your journey is, it's really good. How long did you run the business for? I ran the business for 15 years. Wow. And then I came down to Tasmania and saw the job at IMAS and so I applied for it and here I am. Wow. Well, part three, we're going to be hearing about that job at IMAS that brought you down to Tassie. But sticking still with your 15 years, did the... You said it was for business communication predominantly, but then you were also doing work in the scientific field. So was that something that came naturally over the years as your interests drifted back to science or was it because that's where people wanted to hire you? I worked a lot in um, health and safety management systems for construction and mining at the time. And so I had a really huge range of clients so I was doing science articles I was doing the interpretation signage visitor centres I was also working as a writer transforming health and safety management systems so taking 20 page brain dump documents and turning them into two page procedures that people with reading difficulties could actually understand. That was really good for me, to, for learning to really, really hone down things to the very simplest terms and think visually as well. What were the main skills that you got out of the 15 years? Did you find that you had a lot of time to develop your communication or you were mostly focused on the, the admin and managerial side of running a business? A bit of both, but I often worked in clients' offices for up to six years. So I was working across a lot of communication um, projects, um, moving between departments and things like that. So yes, it takes a bit of time with your business admin, but I had a really good bookkeeper and I let her look after that part of it. And my job was to go out and get clients and to make sure I had work coming through for the three or four people that worked, casuals that worked with me. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. So I think we're about to um, just finish up for part two. So if you guys want to stay with us for part three, we'll take a little dip into Lose Science Communication Outreach here in Tasmania at IMAS. At That's What I Call Science, we love bringing engaging content to all sorts of audiences, and this includes youth. So if you're a teacher at a local school here in Tasmania and have students interested in science, technology, engineering, maths or medicine topics, then let us know and we can come into your school and get them on the radio talking about their favourite exciting scientific ideas.
Welcome back again, everyone. So you're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are diving around and exploring the role as a science communicator. So my name is Emma Hamasaki, and I'm joined by Oli Dove, along with our guest, Louise Creeley, from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. So, Lou, what is, what is your current role here at IMAS? I'm the science communicator here at IMAS. My official role is communication manager. Cool. And what's involved with being a communications manager? It's about understanding what the drivers of research organisations are. So, for example, they need to get funding. They need to have the right people working for them and also with them, the collaborators. And they need to have an education aspect to them as well. So, thinking about how communication fits into that, if you don't talk about your research... If you don't put your research out there, if you're not talking to the community, how does anybody know about it? They'll know through the papers you publish, but then there's a whole lot of students coming through too that might go, wow, I just want to work there. So that's important too. So day to day, what sort of things do you get up to in working in that? I get up to a lot. (laughs) Maybe too much. We do um, a lot of media stories. We do social media, reels, TikToks here at UTAS. And we also um, do a lot of events, a lot of events. We have things like the Antarctic Festival, Wooden Boat Festival has just been, um, and a lot of things, Agfest, and a lot of school interactions. Um, and scientists go out to schools and talk to classes. And then we have exhibitions here. Oh, awesome. What sort of exhibitions? It's a little bit how science meets art. So our current one is our current seaweed art exhibition features local artists and some international artists who work with seaweed as a as a medium and also about seaweed. And they have an absolute passion for diving beneath to understand seaweed and to share that passion with other people. Are the exhibitions open to the public? Can our listeners come and check it out? They definitely can, yes. We're at IMAS at the waterfront in Salamanca. Awesome. And is it just during the week or is it weekends as well? They run from 10 to 4, Monday to Friday. Oh, awesome. Were there a couple of exhibitions that really stood out to you that in the past? The most memorable one for us here recently has been the Handfish Exhibition. That's about the critically endangered red handfish and there are only about a hundred of those left in the wild. So it was a really important exhibition and people loved it. And one of the most exciting things about it was that as it was just towards the end of it, a the cottage school from Belle Reve came here, a class of three to four, year three to four. And Jemina Stewart-Smith, who's the... Um, who is the co-leader of the conservation project, was there talking to them about it and they loved it. So they're wandering around looking at it, everything's great. It's about also about donating. Um, all along the floor were photos of um, handfish that had been adopted out by people um, and that's one of their programs they have to help fund their research. So that was fine. They went off. That was all great. At the end of the term, Jamina was invited back to them to their class and one of the students said to Jemina when she arrived 
You showed us your exhibition, now we'll show you ours. And the entire classroom was full of artwork. There was handfish paintings. There was It was all based around Tasmanian sea country and they'd chosen to fo- focus on handfish. There was a little shrine there that had the handfish in it and all these letters that they had written to businesses asking for donations. And so with those donations, and they got a few, and with their pocket money they raised $2,000 which meant that they could actually adopt two handfish. And so when you adopt a handfish, you get to name it. And they called it them Spot and Sandy. But the, the main thing about that was also the ripple effect of that was that they told their parents about it. They passed, their parents would talk to other people about what their kids were doing at school. And this is a really amazing thing that we sometimes forget is how information is passed along. That's such a valuable point about the fact that anyone can be communicating science because, Louise, do you think you have to be a scientist to communicate science? Well, that's my disclaimer. (laughs) I'm not a scientist. And many people think in order to be a science communicator, you actually have to be a scientist. In some ways, it's actually better that you're not because you haven't been immersed in that technical language, the field of science. This is You're coming to it fresh. And you're looking at it like the people you want to communicate with. Um, So if you can't explain your science to me, then how will I explain it to someone else? And I've never had any problems with it, I guess because I also love science and nature as well. But it's really exciting to draw out the ideas from a scientist and for them to see how it can look when it's put in really simple language. Yeah, I definitely agree with, um, you know, not having to be a scientist because I think sometimes like coming, looking at um, information with fresh eyes can be really important to actually know what's being said. Uh, You know, you obviously work in a field that has a lot of information that might be quite confronting or more difficult to communicate, like climate change. How do you find writing, um, writing about those topics? That's very true. Science can have very controversial aspects and it can actually be quite sad. So we have people who work in plastics, for example, and cutting plastics out of the stomachs of seabirds. Um, And there's people who are working um, in Antarctica and they know the ice melt is happening. And so we understand the changes. We see um, species on the move, for example, there. In Tasmania, we have um, the invasive long-spine sea urchin, which has floated down on the East Australian Current and and can actually breed here because the waters are warming. And so they're actually basically chomping away at our reefs. And kelp, for example, is also under stress because it's a cold-water seaweed. So there's a lot of things that are quite sad, but I think it's also really important to explain to people um, what's happening. People need to know, and that's part of a science communication. In terms of communicating, you know, these more sadder topics, like do you choose language that is a little bit more hopeful or um, a bit more positive to kind of communicate these things? so that the audience can kind of receive it a little bit 
in a less sad way. Oh, it's really it's really important to understand what's really happening. And if you look at the news, you'd be constantly depressed. But really, in a in a place like IMAS, we're really working to solve some of these problems. And so, for example, we, we're doing kelp restoration. We've got, as I spoke about before, the handfish conservation. We're right there in, on the front line and trying to understand what's happening. And sometimes that means looking back into the past to understand how the ocean's going to respond to climate change in the future. And it can be sad, but I think it's also people are okay with information if they think something might be being done about it. I think it's that disempowerment that you often get when you look at the news and you don't see anything happening. But for us here, we call it eco-grief. It can be very sad, but it's also really positive in that we have people doing such great work. Incredible. It really is looking at a different lens to the topic and thinking of how it affects the people delivering the information and the people receiving it. And Lou, you said you're not a scientist, but as a science communicator, you're a fundamental cog in the in the big scheme of science. So thank you for all that you do. As you said earlier, people wouldn't know about anything in science if we don't have people like you telling them. So thank you listeners also for tuning in today to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and hope you enjoyed the show. If you enjoyed it, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to thank again my co-host Emma Hamasaki and our guest Louise Creeley from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. It was great to work with you last year for the Australian Antarctic Festival and look at us now, mic'd up and in the studio together. Amazing. From us here, I hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. Want to hear exciting scientific, technology, engineering, maths and medicine topics? Then you can find That's What I Call Science on all of your favourite podcast streaming services, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or head straight to our website at thatscience.org. Listen to That's What I Call Science on Edge Radio Sundays at 5pm where you'll hear great science coming from our small island by a team of awesome women interviewing expert guests. Be sure to catch it and if you like it, follow us on your favourite social media channel.